This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Faye Weldon, who died on January 4, 2023, at the age of 91, published 31 novels during her lifetime, including The Life and Loves of a She-Devil, one of four novels which were later adapted to film. She was also a playwright, short story writer, television writer, and nonfiction author. Richard A. Lupoff and I interviewed her in the KPFA studios in March 1990 while she was on tour for her now classic novel, The Cloning of Joanna May. Now, when we were doing our research, uh, I found out you worked in a variety of jobs before you actually became a writer, including you wrote reports for the British Foreign Office on the Polish desk? <laughs> that's true, that's true, yes. Unqualified, and uh, yes, I did. And you also worked on the problem page of a newspaper? I did. What did you do? I seem to I rem I remember I answered queries on higher purchase, not so much um, romantic problems or questions oh. of the heart, but just legal matters, very boring when it comes down to it. So it wasn't like from there you got some of your ideas for your more outlandish characters? No, yeah. no, I don't have to. No, you don't have to look at the newspapers. You just look around your friends. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, your mother was a romance author? Well, she ended up as a romance author. She started out as what we know as a serious author, but she was also trying to keep a family on her, the proceeds of her writing, and so she took to more, um, to simpler forms. Now, you also have a romance novelist as, I don't know if you'd call her the antagonist or what, of, uh, of Life and Loves of a She-Devil. Was that character in any way based on your mother? Oh, no. Goodness me, no. I never even thought of such a thing. No, no. My mother was a very intellectual and austere and rational person, and Mary Fisher is the opposite of all these things. It broke my mother's heart to have to write romantic fiction, but, you know, you do all kinds of things if you're going to feed a family. And you grew up in an all-female household? I did, yes. A mother, a sister, a grandmother, myself, and me. I went to an all-girls school. And scarcely a man ever crossed the um, threshold. He must have once, actually. Did you have any male friends when you were growing up at all? No, none. Absolutely none. No. Then it must have been very odd to finally meet them and find out what they're like. It was quite exciting, yes. It was most remarkable. It really was. Astonishing. What was your first impression when you when you discovered this other kind of strange creature walking around? Well, it, it took me a long time to realize that they had feelings. They, they didn't seem to me to be quite real. I still think I have some problem in this area. But I gathered in the end that they were more or less like we were, you know. I, I think that's probably universal. Men feel that way about women. Women feel that way about men. Yes. A woman named Alice Shelton, who used to write under the name uh, James Tiptree, Yes. wrote a story in which she suggested that one gender or the other were alien creatures and not really originated on this earth at all. Well, I mean, we do struggle not to believe this. We do struggle these days to believe that we're all the same or really that, that we have to look at people as persons first and of a certain gender second. And I'm sure I try all the time, but it does go slightly against the grain. I have a quote of yours here. I used to think men were wicked. Now I think people are wicked. Would you agree with that now? 
<laughs> yes, well, you see, I am getting better, aren't I? I'm little <laughs> by little learning. I don't know. I don't think people are wicked. I think people actually try astonishingly hard to be good, but they do keep failing. At least for the most part, they acknowledge that good exists, and they do try to. They try to be virtuous. How about Carl May from The Cloning of Joanna May? Well, he was a pretty bad guy, wasn't he? But I quite like him, really. He just had a rather hard childhood and an unfortunate <laughs> habit of, of murdering his wife's lovers. But many a man feels like doing such a thing, and many a court allows him to do it, so far as I can see, with impunity. Was Carl May based on any real incident, His particularly his childhood? No, I don't think so, except that it was, he was brought up in a kennel, wasn't he? Yes. I thought he was a dog. But he had a little patch of sky that he could see, like Oscar Wilde in Reading Jail, and he, he kind of yearned towards that. So he had his feelings and he had his emotions, and he was rescued from it and given a very good education indeed, and grew up to be a man of great power and influence in the land. I sometimes think many of our leaders are rather like this. I know that a kennel isn't, isn't quite a way of describing an English public school, but it's pretty much the same kind of thing. You have a number of these human monsters in your books. Uh, Carl May certainly is perhaps the worst. Uh, Ruth from uh, Life and Loves of a She-Devil. Look, how can you say such a thing? When I go down to my super, when I go to my supermarket uh, back home in Somerset, England, they all look exactly like Ruth. They really do. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about what she does. Oh, she did become a monster. She was started off as a very good woman indeed. She was a good wife, good mother, a uh, good housekeeper, a bit clumsy. But uh, it didn't do her any good at all in the world. Her husband said she was a she-devil, so she thought she might as well be one. Because and obviously being a... good didn't kind of move him at all. I got the feeling that she-devil, skipping ahead a little, is a kind of Frankenstein story. And Ruth is both her own doctor and the monster itself. She remakes herself and gives herself new life. She does, and she make, remakes herself in such a peculiar image, though, doesn't she? She remakes oh, yeah. herself in something supremely silly. Which everyone else notices, except her. Except her. She doesn't mind. She wants to do it, and she does it. I got into some trouble with that book because I wouldn't say somehow at the end she shouldn't have done this because women are supposed to be content with what they look like, no matter what it is, and are supposed to tell themselves it's what a woman is, not what she looks like, that counts, you see. But I wouldn't reinforce this rather absurd notion. Well, it seems that, that the book takes her and I guess the movie up to a point takes her in a direction that you're going right on Ruth, right on, and then she crosses the line. I, th I think in the book it's at the moment when she says not only to remake her face but to cut off a few inches off of her legs. Yeah, it does sound bizarre, doesn't it? Yeah. Really? Um, but that's what she wanted to do. Did you feel that the character got away from you a little bit there? No, I didn't. That was what she... No, 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 not at all. She was actually suffering not from jealousy but from envy. And the only way you can really deal with envy is actually to become the envied object. And she became the envied object. She had to go through considerable pain and effort and trouble to do it. But that's what she wanted, and she did. In a way, those women are two halves of one woman, the monster and the angel, there's the good woman and the bad woman, together they make up one perfectly reasonable human being. You raise a very interesting point, the difference between jealousy and envy. Would you elaborate on that? Jealousy is, is 
a, I suppose, a rational emotion. It is caused by something. You fear that you are going to lose something that is of value to you, and the emotion is something that you can act upon, usually, I suppose. Revenge, as it were. They mm. have done something nasty to you. You do something nasty to them. There is some sense of possible action that you can take which relieves the pressure of the emotion somewhat. Envy is something, it's a very disagreeable feeling which you're not allowed or supposed to have, but people do have it, and I do feel that that, that plain women have it about pretty women. Ah, and you envy your neighbours what they have, the things that you want that you can't have, and it's very real. And there's almost no way of dealing with it except to own it. But if you are talking of another person, then you become it, and then the feeling is gone. You, you raise the issue uh, about wanting to change one's own appearance, and the fact that nowadays that is a subject of political controversy. On the one hand, there's the, the argument that we must learn to accept ourselves as we are, fat or thin, tall or short, uh, smooth complexions or, or warts and pimples or, or however. The other side, which is more of our consumerist philosophy, is to everyone should be beautiful and you must go out and spend all your money to get there. Are you taking sides on this? Well, no, I think I'm just <laughs> presenting it. I'm saying, I mean, both these things are true, and it is a kind of internal struggle that we all have, because, you know, it is really rather unworthy and irreligious and ungrateful to the God who made you to suggest that he could have done it any better. Nevertheless, when we look at it, we can see that perhaps he could have. Even the character of Ruth at the beginning, now, you know, I don't think she was a monster. I mean, physically at all. In fact, a number of men are attracted to her right through the book. Yes, but that's because the devil's on her side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are your feelings on God and the devil? <laughs> God and the devil. Well, I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I don't. Well, I don't know. That they exist, I would grant you. That I, I don't. Whoever this God is, he didn't make a very good job of things. I do think that man has obviously got a much, by which, of course, I include women, the lesser. Right. I do think a man has a, has a kind of moral sense which God, so far as we can see in his work, simply does not. So I would see man as actually a rather higher form than our creator. I think we've sort of taken a march on him, actually. Well, if if God is not moral and the devil is the opposite of God, what's the difference? Well, I can't see much, to tell you the truth. I think people used to get burnt for saying this kind of thing. It was a Manichaean heresy or something. Right. Well, people still offer million-dollar rewards. Yes, they do. Yes, they do, frankly, saying such things. It's true. Your book, Shrapnel Academy, deals with your feelings about war. What I found fascinating is the end of the book, where it's, it's almost the proverbial, well, what happens? Well, everybody walks into a street, a, a, a bus hits them, and they're all killed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I let some free, didn't I? You did, you did I, let I'm, some that free. That was, that was the point, actually, not the ones that went, but the ones that survived. I allowed, actually, one really nice, simple man and one rather foolish feminist out to repopulate the world. Now, did you intend on just blowing up your book on page 160. 
Yes, I did. Because this seemed to me the obvious. This is really, it was an exercise about how people blow things up, how they end up blowing things up when they don't mean to. That was the whole point. So, yes, I certainly did. And in fact, the analogy with Napoleon is the same thing. In the book. Yes, of course it was, and the whole thing was becomes a kind becomes a parable of the the the, the Western world and the third or fourth or fifth world, uh, and, and so forth and so on. And you put them all in a house and you play out these, you, you play out the dramas, the end of which can only be really if they persist in the idiocy and blowing each other, blowing themselves up, without planning to. Without, of course, planning to. And who blows themselves up planning to? You, know, you blow your enemy up and you usually blow yourself up as well. You also address the reader uh, as gentle reader. Are your readers, are Faye Weldon's readers gentle? They're quite nice people. No, my theory is they're just human beings and so they're not particularly gentle. And, and But it's a convention to call them gentle in a rather old-fashioned sense of the world, word which really actually doesn't mean quite what we know it now, but really people with with style and taste enough to appreciate what you're saying. You, you speak of the old-fashioned style, and in fact, critics have compared you to such writers as, as Dickens and Anthony Trollope. Yet, it seems to me that most, many of your attitudes and imagery is very, very modern, perhaps even what we sometimes call on the cutting edge of being postmodern. Are you living in two centuries or three centuries at once? I think it's a question of, of narration and the way you tell stories. I do, did, still do a lot of television writing. That's very, uh, quite bleak in a way. I mean, you, you, you say what you've got to say and you get out as quickly as you can, yes. leaving the world to others. The, the write, I mean, the writing of a novel also, it seems, if you are writing for people who actually watch, take, absorb their fiction through the screen, which most of us do now, then there is a way of, of dealing with narrative which is the same as, as film does it. And it's different from, you don't have to use so many words as Dickens. Trollope managed to use not very many words. I mean, the book's quite long, but he doesn't go into long, sort of overwritten passages the way Dickens does. Dickens was the champion, at least. Yes, let me day. not say overwritten. I shouldn't, shouldn't uh, and yet, but now, today, that. 1990, most of our bestsellers are these huge, fat, what, what my partner here, Richard Walensky, calls bloat books. Well, people like to think they've got their money's worth, don't they? Really? That's my theory. You continue to write more spare books. Yes, I'm writing. They're getting a bit longer, I notice. The last one's got whole pages without paragraphs or conversation. I've just finished that one. My editor was rather alarmed and keeps putting in paragraphs. Little did we think we'd ever come to this. I'd like to get back for a second to Cloning of Joanna May. It's um, sort of science fiction. Science speculation. Let us not suppose that these things are in the future. I fear they are now. Do you have a background in science fiction or speculation? Have you read books? Oh yes, yes, yes. I used to read. I used to read astounding science fiction as a child ceaselessly. Do you remember any of your favorite stories from that? Yes, I remember Aliens. Now, okay, Alien came from a science fiction story. I oh, sure. Reading Even it, vote, I was rather too. shocked when I thought that they, somebody's cheated. Somebody's remembered this story. Yes, lots of them. Yes. I remember the wonderful one about about life on top of a table. Now, who was that? That was, um, um... Might have been either a Heinlein or a Blish story. 
no, 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 a pole. It was Frederick. Frederick Pohl. Pohl? It was Fred, Fred Pohl. And I, the only, I've only film I've ever, only time I've ever been moved to want to make a film about anything was that that um, that particular story. It was about a market research operation. But again, it started with an explosion. The whole town had been had been wiped out. He suddenly began to realise he was living the same day, over and over again. But the slogans were different, and it was wonderful. I don't remember the story. It sounds almost like a Phil Dick story, but if it was... Oh, no, yeah. it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. But are, are you familiar with his works? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm his, I'm his greatest fan. I'm his, I'm his fan. I think, um, think Pynchon, you see, is actually... The latest Pynchon is, is actually written by Philip K. Dick, reincarnated. Well, numerous books have come out that read as if they were written by Philip K. Dick reincarnated. Is he pretty much your favorite science fiction writer? Yes, I think so. If I'm, if I'm sort of, but again, but then, then Huxley wrote um, Brave New World. I also notice in in some of your attributions where you can cite authors whom you liked. Uh, uh, to me, intriguing list of George Bernard Shaw. Sinclair Lewis, and, of course, H.G. Wells, who was uh, the father of modern science yes, fiction. Yes, yes, yes. Are, are, are you uh, well-informed on uh, matters of technology? Yes, yeah, I reckon so, more or less. How do you do that? I just read magazines. I read New Scientist every week, which becomes a kind of soap opera, really. You know, it's just popular science. I noticed that, uh, well, obviously, the cloning of Joanna May, the title itself is indicative of one theme, but there are also... The whole Chernobyl incident, which I think may become some sort of paradigm for for its era, just as Hiroshima yes. was a paradigm of 40 years earlier, it pervades the book. Yes, it's there really because that was the unexpected and extraordinary thing that made us, especially in, in Europe, realize that it wasn't science fiction, that it did happen, that it was here. And it's there as a background to this book, because though that, the contents of this book, which is the whole matter of genetic engineering, sounds as if it's in the future, it is actually happening now, and it's very hard for people to understand, to make this jump in their own mind into a world which is going on as it used to, or did in their parents' generation, was actually beginning little by little to happen now as you see it in the various legal tussles over who owns owns the sperm or the egg or so forth and so on. And the whole sense of, I think, the most profound sense that it's the difference that it's making is making children seem less and less to belong to the mother or the father, because you can see that the baby grows in a, which simply uses a womb to grow in, and that it's not a magic part of the baby, that it grew in this, or for the mother, that the baby grew in this particular, in this particular place. So the whole notion of motherhood, I think, has taken a great knock, whether it's good or bad, but if these things happen almost without us even realizing it or thinking about it. Well, uh, cloning removes men completely, if it's a woman being cloned, as in this book, it removes men completely from the equation well, entirely. Men do, yes, but on the whole, men are doing it. I mean, it takes it out of the hands of women. You can, you know, you can right. clone men without bothering about, you still need a womb, but you suspect that uh, the surrogate, as we had right back in Huxley's right. book, will... will 
do the same thing. Start with the premise, for example, of let's suppose you were a clone of Joanna May. Yes. And you're implanted in a woman and you grow up in an all-women's household. Yes. And then you see your first man. Mm. <laughs> it is an alien species. It's got no connection with you except through some kind of multi-generational thing in the past, like yes. dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> except, you know, I mean, they do. They did have their attractions, man. Let us not suppose that they didn't when you meet them. The shock of the new and so forth. I have four sons, you know, now, right. and a husband, and I mean, I just moved from all female to all male. You know. Well, in, in fact, that is, I find that most intriguing that uh, you you state that you grew up in, a, in an entirely female household. Incidentally, a recent, another recent guest here, Patrick McNee, uh, had written his autobiography yes. in which he grew up in an entirely female household. Yes. And he tells some. Um, on the surface, hilarious stories, but underneath you can see that there's a, a lot of pain and poignance there. That would be more yes. difficult because you are the one you you're you're the one out somehow. That would be really difficult if you're with all women. This is just what the world is. The world is female, and it seems okay, but you're not a stranger in it. In a yes. way, so I, I think that. Do you, Do you feel that perhaps this, <coughs> on some level, makes you less uh, antagonistic? toward men, for example, because you always felt part of a group, part of the women group, as opposed to being kind of out there having men force something on you. Well, I don't know. I think when, 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 um, I mean, it was obvious you had to try and please them, but it was terribly difficult to work out how to do it, really. It still is. Um, you know, they didn't want you to be too clever, so far as I could see. They didn't want you to be funny. They wanted you to listen to them. And I just wanted to talk, you see. And I think probably I just write books because I'm in this all-male household with talking. <laughs> and I'm supposed to do the listening. You, you have four sons. What are their ages? Their ages are 30, 23, 7, 18, and 12. That's so there you are with these four sons plus your husband. And, and, and there you are at the center of this amazing constellation. No, I think I'm in the periphery, frankly. Really? I would expect just the opposite. I really would. But but what about that? <laughs> well, I don't know. We get by. I suppose. I mean, I think I, do, I think I really do see them as persons. I don't think any of us ever role played in the sense that you know, I mean, you you know, you do what is required. I mean, it's the nature of the, the you know the parent and the child and 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 two adults trying to keep a household going, and you do what you do best because you're because you're male or because you're female and i think my husband, my husband paints pictures and plays jazz trumpet that also had a rather strange upbringing so i don't think any of us ever came into this marriage with any preconceived notions of what people ought to do or what a mother was or what a father was or what a wife was or what a husband was so you just behave as people trying to set up a house together with with no precedent whatsoever. And a fine mess we made of it at first, but we got better. How does your family deal with the books you write? I don't know. I don't ask them. <laughs> Do they read them? I don't know. We don't talk about them. We prefer not to talk about them. Actually, I know my oldest son, who's a musician, has, has read one because he actually composed a suite called Puffball Street, and occasionally I go out and read and he plays and we do this kind of cabaret act between us. So I know he has read that one. 
There is no way around it. That must be wonderful fun. Uh, is is leader of the band based on your your life and your family? <laughs> it's based on a very particular incident when I actually, I mean, a couple of years back, just before I wrote it, when I did, in fact, go to the south of France with the band. So all that background, although the, the surface was completely fictional, but the whole, the background was just, a, was really just a couple of weeks spent with a rather bad band in, in, <laughs> in a rather grotty, um, grotty small French town in a folklorique. If you don't mind reverting for a moment to a little bit of family history, I was really quite astonished to realize that you were descended from the uh, the literary Jepson family of Selwyn Jepson, Edgar Jepson, your mother Margaret Jepson, who was also Pearl Belairs. You grew up then, or did you grow up, surrounded by literature and a lot of literary stimulus? Well, I grew up in New Zealand because my mother married my father when she was very young. My father was an English doctor. We went out to New Zealand. The war came. There was very little, very little connection except what that I, I sort of read the book and knew about them all. And they were... And my mother's family was part of the H.G. Wells Shaw literary and the, and the Fabians and, and all that, that particular literary set. So I was brought up, as it were, with stories of, of that. Never, but, my, but then by the time we came back after the war, my grandfather had died. My uncle and my mother quarreled over something. And so there was very little yes. connection in that, you know, very little literary connection my mother had stopped writing by then so when I started I just started I was working in an advertising agency and I just as it were started fresh all that tradition was stopped in with the war it was a kind of convulsion in cultural affairs really I think that we all yes. we all suffered there and Wells died in forty six, so yes, never and there was him. there wasn't there wasn't unfortunately any, there wasn't any connection. But you wound up writing memos for Churchill. Did, Did you deal with him? No, I didn't. I mean, he was very old and senile, but then I was working in the Foreign Office, and and I I was graduated terribly young in economics, and they paid us tiny wage. We girl graduates, and they left us to do all the work while they went out drinking and politicking and conspiring and sending out spies. And we just used to sit in this office and write these reports. And we used to write what we were told. And it was was um, uh, I was on the Polish desk simply because it happened to be there, you know. And and everything came in translation. There were enormous numbers of people translating everything that came. Uh, from the other side of what was then this, the Iron Curtain, and Poland was rebuilding itself from rubble, completely rubble, and I was there, sort of, sort of, you know, analysing what was going on, and I knew that they expected me to say it was all terrible, terrible, and they were making an awful job of it, and I did because I was <laughs> twenty, and and you know you want to please your masters in any way. If you have a lot of evidence, you pick out this or you pick out that. And it was a great lesson to me in how never to believe anything you read. Really, so you might as well read fiction, write fiction, read fiction as try and get at the truth of anything. And these reports would go up to to Churchill. 
and they would come back sort of signed, corrected like a school essay. VG, and then whatever his initials were down the bottom. Oh, this is amazing. They were all top secrets. You couldn't let them out and show them to anybody. It was all completely bizarre, you see. And, and people will say the books are bizarre, but when you consider what really goes on... Do you think there is any way of getting at the truth? The cloning is a kind of stab at the whole, really, the whole nurture-nature uh, debate, which is, is really hardly open to scientific. <laughs> Not yet, though I think they're getting some way of doing it, of how much we are what we're born, how much we are what we're made, and you you will never really know. I did went to college and I did economics and psychology, and I used to study the work of Cyril Burt and his studies on identical twins, and I thought they were wonderful. And then you then Cyril Burt gets into terrible trouble later because apparently he made the whole thing us. Well, I think there is a movement to resuscitate him now, but you know, what do you believe? You might as well have a guess. And I worked in market research for a time, and again, the same thing happens. You can either wade through columns and columns and columns of figures, or you can just do what most of us do in these offices is just sort of make a stab at the truth and write down figures. <laughs> and everybody's doing it. I really do now trust fiction. If you work it out, sometimes there are surprises, but mostly you know what people are going to say, what they think, how they're going to say it. You know the proportion that's going to want to hang people and the proportion that's going to want to hunt foxes and simply by your conversations on the top of the bus, don't you? I was quite struck by certain, I might say, resonances of imagery uh, between your works and the works of some other people. In particular, there was the, the very odd incident, was, was it in Shrapnel Academy, of the uh, dog pate? Yes. Are, are you familiar with a film called War of the Roses? I saw it. I saw it on the plane coming over here. And was, indeed, was... there was dog sandwiches. But I think they got, I think they must have read my book, don't you? Well, yours was earlier. Mine so was earlier, but no, I can't. I can't claim, you know, I can't claim dog patty as mine and only mine. Ideas are universal, you know. <laughs> well, we have sheep on the other side, you know. We have sheep that side of the door and dogs this side of the door. And we eat the sheep and we don't eat the dogs. Why? The sheep seem perfectly intelligent to me. Well, fairly. You've been called a feminist writer. You've been called an anti-feminist writer. Where do you see yourself? <laughs> I don't. I think feminism is in the eye of the beholder. I believe I'm the one, the true, the only feminist, and all the others are out of step. I mean, if I said Margaret Atwood. Oh, well, that would be a different point, a different case. I think I'm pretty much the same kind of feminist as she is. I am concerned and interested with the lives and situation of women because I believe the world to be female still from my early experience. And this seems to me a matter of great interest. So in that sense, certainly I am... I am a feminist, and I, I can see the particular problems that women have that I've... And I still believe that understanding these makes it easier for them to be people rather than of this rather difficult gender. Well, in, in fact, Margaret Atwood was a guest of ours a few months ago and uh, made statements and expressed experiences I think quite comparable to your own. Yes. Do, do you know her, by the way? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I but, have great and a great admiration for uh, her. But she mentions that while she considers herself a feminist, she is totally anathematized by some feminists who feel that she's a sellout. Yes, you do get this because if you write, you you have a kind of 
you write novels, you have a kind of, you, f you feel you have some kind of duty to the novel that you're writing, and you can't shift it over to make it convenient to groups or sections of society. If it suits them, you are as a person pleased, because I would see myself as a feminist, she sees herself as a feminist, but you can't, you can't write, you can't, you're, you're not writing propaganda, you're writing some kind of parable about the real world, and you can't distort it because it would be particularly convenient. I mean, it is irritating for feminists because you, you you get read by a lot of people and it seems a waste if you don't use that time almost or all that focusing to, to um, move the world in a certain direction. But you see, even the feminists change their views or their, the emphasis of what they believe. I mean, I wrote a novel called Puffball, which got me into terrible trouble because it suggested that women were, had babies and were at the mercy to quite a large extent of their hormones, which at the time we were supposed to ignore, really. But then things moved on a bit, and, and, and fecundity became okay, and we were all at one with nature, and breathing and pulsating and stuff. Do you think we're moving back toward a <laughs> matriarchal society? I don't honestly know what that means, you see. What do you mean by matriarchal society? I don't think that any such society ever existed. People will talk about it in the, in the, in the, in the, in the ancient far-off days when women ruled, but I don't think there's almost no evidence for this barely at all, apart from a statue or two, and two lines in a, in a German sociologist in 1930 about a matriarchal society. But it's based, as all these notions are, on almost nothing, no evidence. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see it. I want to know it. Perhaps it exists and perhaps I'm wrong. I, I know I hope we move towards a society again, and really seriously, in which gender is neither here nor there, but ability and good nature. Is it true that men come to you and, and angrily accuse you of causing their divorces? Yes. Do they give any specific reasons? Well, they think think their wives have read my books, which can be the only reason. But I think if anybody comes to me and angrily accuses me of having made his wife leave him, then he seems to be the kind of kind of husband women would leave in the first place. No, it's very hard. And they look for reasons because it's very hard to assume, to, you know, to absorb the fact that it, you may have some part to play in what seems to you a totally unreasonable and random event, and sometimes is. But uh, yeah, that, it happens rather less. There was a time when, when to, you really weren't supposed to put ideas into people's heads because it would do them no good. Um, but we're beyond that now. There's so many ideas in our heads, we might as well have some good ones. I was in Germany, in Bavaria, not long ago, and I was doing a reading and reading to women, and... When one of the women, one of the women in the audience said, "I didn't know we were allowed to think like that," and it was astonishing because you get used to people saying, "I didn't know we were allowed to do that." You assume that people feel they have a right to think freely, but they don't even assume that there are channels in which people allow their minds to run. That seems a waste. Well, I noticed a lot of that being in Italy. That the men there, at least and a lot of the women acquiesce to it. Uh, the women aren't supposed to think, and the men are supposed to make the decisions, and those men who were willing to acknowledge it actually tended to marry women from Australia or Germany or the United States and not Italian women. Yes, but aren't they all good-looking? 
everybody in Italy, in northern Italy, Milan, I just walked down the street, you know, everyone was gorgeous. What do we make of this? Do you think it's because, <laughs> think it's because this state between the sexes is natural and everybody is happy in it? Wouldn't that be a terrible thought? That would be horrible. Perhaps they're right. Perhaps they're right. You see, if things are universally accepted to be true, we must at least consider that they might be, don't you think? So much of this and so many of these incidents and notions are, on the surface, sound sound silly and funny and amusing, but at a submerged level are not at all silly and maybe not at all funny or amusing either. Well, I hope, no, of course they're not. I mean, I joke all the time and I joke in the books, but I think they're profoundly serious. You've written a great many books, short stories. You've, you've written for theater, I believe, for television. Is there a purpose to all of this fiction other than, let me preface this, it's obvious that the author makes a living out of it and the reader gets some enjoyment out of it. Uh, if that's the whole transaction, I suppose that is sufficient. But I wonder if there is more to it than oh, that. Oh, yes, yes, I want to change the world. Um, yes, I want to change the world. I think people live within myths. They live within myths of what they are. They live within myths of what their society is and what it's trying to do. And up to a point, that's quite good, or at least sustains them through fairly difficult lives. But then it comes a point when the myth actually begins to begins to damage. And I think it's in that those areas that I uh, that I, I I like to work. It's there's a kind of you get a whole consensus of ideas, and you get it both on the left and you get it on the right, and it gets out of control, so the consensus of opinion on the left now is beginning to be damaging to itself, I think. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, things change all the time, mm -hmm. and you have to keep it sort of, keep this pendulum swinging. So. And in view of the really monstrously or, or gigantically uh, dramatic events of the past year, we are speaking in uh, the end of March 1990, and I, yes. I think the past 12 months have had more history in them than the past 40 years. Yes. Ideas change. Ideas move people. They, they get into people's head. Truth. People have great hunger for truth. They have a hunger for freedom, but they don't have anything, any food for it or not much. You can live in a very free society and still not have any ideas coming through to you. Once the ideas are there, if they're in your if they're in your interests, you 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 absorb them. You 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 change. I, people get better. I do really believe this. They they develop empathy. I think fiction mm. is extraordinarily important in this process. That you, it's the only way we know what other people what it is to be another person. Once you know and feel and understand that, it's extremely difficult. To, to damage them. I mean, I find it more and more difficult to go outside my front door and eat my sheep, you understand. Faye Weldon's career continued for the next 30 years with several more novels, including a sequel to She-Devil, more plays, more short stories, and several works of nonfiction. Dick Lupoff and I had a second chance to interview Faye Weldon two years later while she was on tour for her novel, Life Force. You've been listening to a March 1990 interview with the late novelist and playwright Faye Weldon, who died on January 4th, 2023, at the age of 91. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff.
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.